Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, pastoring Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Thanks for joining me today. Well, the time has come. The time has arrived. It is Romans Day, part one. It is time for us to look at the book of Romans, which I am, of course, very excited about. I've been talking to you about this for quite some time, that this was coming. For the week of August 7th through the 13th, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to be talking about Romans 1 through 6. Wow, Romans 1 through 6. There's a, there's a few stuff, or a few things, rather, to talk about in Romans 1 through 6. <laughs> and to do so in a week seems a bit crazy. But we're gonna try. We're gonna we're gonna try to cover that, and uh, we're gonna hopefully learn a lot along the way, have a good time, and grow in our knowledge of the truth. Okay, that's the goal here. I was just having to turn off some of my notifications so nothing interrupts us. All right, very good. Romans one through six. I, I think I'll probably end up doing one through five today, which means next week <laughs> it's the rest of the book, six to sixteen. Oh my goodness, how do you talk about Romans 6 to 16 like that? Well, we'll see. Today, it's Romans 1 through 5. And before we get into the text of Scripture, I want to share with you something. If you're watching, if you're just listening to this, you're not going to get the full effect. So I'd encourage you to get on YouTube or Facebook where we post these, and you could check that out. But I have here in front of you an outline of Romans. There are all kinds of outlines for every book of the Bible that you can find online. Outlines are a very good thing to do. In Bible college, I had to do that all the time for books of the Bible. I even took a class just on Romans. And here you have an outline for the book of Romans that I think is pretty good. It's not one that I made. It's one that I got from webtruth.org that uh, has, I don't know, a bunch of good information in it uh, that... Um, that should help you to see the big picture of Romans. And we are going to look at, again, chapters 1 through 5 today, which comprise these first two columns. You can see that uh, there are five sections, as this person has outlined, the book of Romans, and the first two sections cover the first five chapters. Now, what you'll also notice here is that the book of Romans has as its major theme righteousness. You see that with every section heading, it begins with the word righteousness. So for the beginning of the book through the middle of chapter 3, the theme is there is righteousness required because of human guilt. God demands righteousness, and it's required to meet his holy standard. Well, what we're about to see in chapters 1 through 3 is that no one has that righteousness in and of himself. And so from the middle of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5, what Paul communicates is that righteousness is actually imputed to the believer by divine grace. And from that point forward, we can read about how in the next section, righteousness enables someone to live the spiritual life. R righteousness itself kind of becomes enabled in the person as that person lives for God. It is an 
it's enabled in the sense of it becomes practical. It's not just this positional spiritual idea where we are saved because God gives us righteousness on our account, but we can actually uh, live out righteousness. And that is also the theme of the uh, end section of the letter. Chapters 12 through the end talk about how righteousness is displayed in the Christian's daily walk. That's how they've titled that section. The second to last section, chapters 9 through 11, is about how righteousness is obtained by unmerited mercy, specifically with the nation of Israel being restored. Okay, so I don't know how much of that we'll focus on next week, but that's a big part of Romans, three full chapters talking about what's going to happen with Israel, considering how they're not righteous and righteousness is required to be saved, and they have all these promises given to them, what's going to happen. Romans 9 through 11 talks about that. But this week, I want us to focus on chapters 1 through 5. Real simple, two parts. Righteousness is required. We don't have it. Second part, righteousness is what God has, and He imputes it by His grace. Talking about condemnation for the first section, all people are condemned. And then in the next section, talking about this justification of God, all people who have received the righteousness of God by grace will be declared innocent. The need for salvation is going to be discussed in the first section, and the plan of salvation is going to be revealed in the second section. You can see in this row of the chart, this chart maker even put an alliteration with a bunch of S's. (laughs) First section talks about sin, second section talks about salvation. And then it gets into sanctification, sovereignty, and service. And we'll talk about that next week. But this week, the first two sections of the book of Romans. You ready? It's a great book. One of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. Um, I mean, the Bible as a whole is that. And this is just one of the most amazing books within the Bible. It's the book of Romans. Well, let's uh, just give... Put the text here up on the screen here. Give a big overview. Romans chapter 1 is obviously the start of the letter, and it's critical because it is the start of the letter. It's critical to read chapter 1 if you're going to get anything in chapters 2 through 15, or two through 16. Uh, Romans 1 explains so much about the world that we live in. This opening part, uh, you have Paul, you know, of course, introducing himself with greetings, um, Grace and grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, what you would expect from Paul. And then he starts talking about the gospel in verse 16, where he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it, and when he says it here, he's talking about the gospel. That's what he's talking about in verse 16. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So righteousness is the theme of the book of Romans, and it gets kicked off right here in the first part of the first chapter. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. God's righteousness is found within the gospel. Now, there have been many people I've talked to out here in Utah that I've asked, what is the gospel to? And I don't always get the same answer, which is bad, all right? It's bad because here we have 
Paul saying definitively, he's not ashamed of the gospel, and in that gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. The gospel is the power of God. Um, If you don't know what it is, if you're unsure, if your definition differs from the guy next to you, that's bad. Okay, the gospel, which means good news, is like the most important thing that you could take out of the Bible. There's so many things you could take out of there as far as learning as a student of Scripture, but the most important is the gospel. So I hope that by the end of this session, our time together here today, that you will know quite clearly what is the gospel and how God's righteousness is revealed in it. Well, where he goes next in chapter 1 isn't too good news. (laughs) He says in verses 16 and 17 that this good news is the power of God. This good news reveals the righteousness of God. And then he's going to spend like basically the next two chapters worth of verses talking about bad news. Look at where he goes here. The very next verse says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the theme of Romans is righteousness, and we were just given this little taste of God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. But first, we're going to look at fallen man. We're going to look at at man in his natural state, all people in their natural state. And they're not categorized by righteousness. They're categorized by unrighteousness. And God's wrath, his righteous wrath, is revealed from heaven against man, unrighteous man. And why is it that God's righteous wrath is revealed against them? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, these unrighteous men, because God made it evident to them. God revealed himself to all people. That's what he's done both in creation and in their hearts. They're made in his image. They know he exists intuitively. And creation just screams that there's a creator. For since the creation of the world, verse 20 says, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. That is the earth we're living in and the universe we're floating in. That all has been made by God and his attributes and his nature have been clearly seen and understood by men so that all men are without excuse. So this idea that, well, what about the people who have never heard of God? They would you know, readily fall to his feet and worship him if they only had somebody tell them. Well, actually, that's not quite true. I mean, that could be true in one sense of what you might mean there. But what Paul is saying here is that they can actually look around as image bearers of God and know from without and from within that their creator exists. They're without excuse in this regard. And what have they done? They've actually suppressed that truth in their unrighteousness because they're sinners, They have suppressed the truth. They pushed it down, deep down in their conscience, in their soul, in their unrighteousness. They've suppressed the truth of God. They're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, 
but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. So their suppressing of the truth in their unrighteousness, their suppression of the righteous God and the truth about him that has been clearly revealed to them, their suppression of that has actually led them into further depravity. Their foolish heart was darkened. Even though they say they're wise, verse 22, they're actually fools, and they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for idols, for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They've substituted the glory of God for idols. And so God has given man over to his sin. That's what God's doing in showing his wrath. Because, you know, this started off in verse 18 by saying that wrath, the wrath of God is revealed. And you might wonder... How on earth is God revealing his wrath? I'm not seeing people get struck by lightning left and right or falling asteroids or whatever. Well, actually, God is giving them over to their sin. That's how his wrath is revealed, by giving them over to further and further depravity. And it says three times in this passage that God is giving them over. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28 God gave them over to a depraved mind, and they just go further and further into sin. So this applies to all people in our, in our natural state. I would say especially Gentiles is who Paul has in view here, but it's all people naturally. We don't sin to become sinners. We are born sinners, and that is evidenced by the way that we naturally sin. That's evidenced by the way a, a baby is selfish. That's evidenced by the way uh, children just naturally disobey their parents. They don't need to be told to disobey their parents or taught to do that. They just naturally do it. They hit their siblings, and they cry out selfishly for things that they want, and they don't have thankfulness in their hearts very often, right? you got to teach a kid to say please and thank you. You don't have to teach a kid to be selfish. Why is that? Because we are naturally sinful. But even if Paul mainly had... Gentiles in mind in chapter 1, he actually goes on uh, to talk about them specifically in chapter 2, especially as you get down to verses 12 through 16, which are really interesting. But not to let the Jews off the hook, he emphasizes in chapter 2, verses 17 to the end, that the Jews are also under the condemnation of God. He perhaps had some Jews who were reading or had Gentiles reading who were wondering about the Jewish people, and they also are in a pickle because they are under the law. That's the heading here in the New American Standard. The Jew is condemned by the law. They are condemned by the law because they can't keep the law. They are quite often found breaking the law and dishonoring God, verse 23. He reminds them that keeping the law outwardly through circumcision or uh, you know something they could do in the flesh actually doesn't mean anything if they keep breaking the law. In that way, their circumcision has become uncircumcision because God cares about obedience from the heart, and no Jew has ever been able to keep the law from the heart perfectly, except for the carpenter's son, who was born of a virgin. Everyone else has failed in this endeavor. They have not been able to truly keep the requirements of the law. Yeah, sure, maybe they paid their tithes, 
Maybe they even tithed their mint and their dill and their cumin. Remember that in the Gospels? Jesus talks about that in Matthew 23. Yeah, maybe they did all that. But did they obey the law from the heart in their acting out of what it said to do? Were they actually cheerfully giving because God loves a cheerful giver? Were they truly Jews inwardly, or was it merely a performance act? Verse 29, Paul says, A true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. Circumcision is actually that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not just by cold, rigid performance of religious duty, not by the letter. And that man's praise is not from men, but from God. Well, none of them had perfectly kept the law from the heart. And none of the Gentiles were able to please God in their wicked ways, even as they were laws to themselves. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 2.12 and following. They, Even though they make laws that say don't murder, basically copying off of God's law, which is written on their heart, don't murder, don't steal, etc. You can think of America in this way. We've made these laws. We haven't adopted the Old Testament as the law of our land, but we've copied off the Old Testament because that's what's written on our heart is this eternal morality of God, not uh, the law that was given to Israel verbatim, but this morality that is written on our hearts. We are in our natural state under this law of God to keep it purely with a good conscience, and yet we're unable to do it. We all break the law. We've all broken the law in one way or another. And the Jews constantly broke the law. So everybody is condemned. And that's where Paul goes in chapter 3. I love the heading here of the New American Standard. All the world guilty. Look at what verse 10 says. There is none righteous, not even one. Wow. There is none righteous, not even one. The unrighteousness of man is demonstrating the righteousness of God. When man fails, it shows just how good God is and how high his ways are and how low our ways are. This is the righteousness dynamic that we have to understand if we're going to understand the gospel. Remember my what I said at the beginning, that I hope you understand the gospel here. I hope you walk away understanding what the good news is, having that answer, and understanding how the righteousness of God is revealed in it, because that's what Paul said in the opening chapter. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and it starts by recognizing this dichotomy between creator and creation. There is one good, eternal God who is just everlastingly good in all of his ways. Every thought, every action, every motive, perfectly good on the part of God. And yet, as creatures, here we are, fallen, sinful. It says later on in chapter 3 that we have fallen short of the glory of God. He is righteous, we are unrighteous. And if you're ever going to understand what the gospel is, if you're ever going to get the good news and be able to place your faith in Jesus through the gospel, you have to understand that God is absolutely righteous and you are absolutely not. God is always right. You are not. God is inerrant. He's unable to err. He's infallible. There's just no way that God will ever do anything wrong. And we are absolutely fallible. We are subject to 
doing wrong things, thinking wrong things, having wrong motives all the time, 24-7, 365. What are we learning here in these opening chapters of Romans? God is righteous, and it is so evident by the way we are so unrighteous. We are, we are unrighteous people through and through. And if you need more evidence of that, look at how Paul words this. Romans 3, starting in verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps, or snakes, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Perhaps the worst thing that could be said of fallen sinners There is no fear of God before their eyes. And the law of God, which reveals his righteousness, shuts us up. God gives us the law, speaking to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. That the whole world would recognize they are unrighteous before the righteous God of the universe. Because... By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law doesn't come salvation, but the knowledge of sin. Through the law does not come the deliverance from sin. Because that would make you the Savior, you understand. You would look to the law and say, Oh, okay, I just need to adjust my behavior and then I'll be uh, free from sin. No, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And you are born under the law. Jews, of course, were born under the law, but so are all the children of Adam. You are born into this life condemned by your works. You have broken God's law. You have been immoral. You have willfully rebelled against your creator. And you will be judged by the way that you've broken the law. No flesh will be justified. No no person will be declared innocent because that person was able to perform based on law. It's impossible. That's Paul's big point. That's a lot of bad news. I thought the gospel meant good news. I thought we were going to understand the gospel based on Romans. What's the good news? Well, I hope you've gotten the bad news. I hope I hope it's become clear. If so, you're ready for the good news. And here it comes. Verse 21. But now, apart from... From the law. This is important to understand. Paul is making this so clear. Apart from the law, not through the law, not by the law, not in the law, apart from the law, separate from the law, the righteousness, there's our word, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's not in the law but it's witnessed by the law, the righteousness of God, even the righteousness of God, there it is again, whoops, righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is a righteousness 
that is given to believers in Jesus Christ. Oh, my phone is ringing. I'm going to hang that up. I'll call that person back in a bit. There is a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for everyone who believes. Not a righteousness of God through law, through keeping up your good deeds, through performing spiritual religious acts. None of that. The righteousness of God, I keep saying a righteousness of God, it's really the righteousness of God, isn't it? The righteousness of God comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. It's for all those who believe. And remember, he just condemned by the law, Jew and Gentile, that's all people. So all people are equally condemned, but guess what? All people can be equally forgiven. He says, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what he's been making clear through these chapters. And yet there is justification. Oops. Justification as a gift. Justification is a gift of God. Now, perhaps you've been someone who has sought to work and earn from God, that, that you, have to, you have to put in the effort to earn your way in God's system to work your way up the ladder or to get yourself out of the sinful mess that you're in. You, you've been going back to law. Maybe it's not the law of Moses. Maybe it's a law that some other dude uh, just made up and, and gave to you and say, hey, here's, here are the steps. That is not a gift. Therefore, that's not good news. We're reading here in Romans chapter 3, quite plainly, that our justification, our forgiveness of sins, our innocence through the gospel, that God would declare us innocent in Jesus, it is a gift by His grace through the redemption of Jesus. It's a faith thing. Because if you had to earn it, so that means works apart from faith, if you had to put in some effort, that's no longer a gift. At that point, we're dealing with a wage. We're dealing with something that is rightfully owed to you because you worked for it. You don't get your paycheck uh, from your employer and say, thank you for that gift. No, because you had, to, you had to earn it. You had to put in the time. You had to put in the work. That's not a gift. That's a wage. Justification, which is being declared innocent, our salvation is a gift by the grace of God. It's by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That word propitiation means satisfactory payment. Uh, some, sometimes people will use the word atonement, but let's keep it biblical here. This is a New Testament word. Propitiation. God put Jesus Christ forth before all of mankind as a satisfactory payment for sin. Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin. This was in his blood, this payment was made, but it's through faith that that satisfactory payment is applied to us as a gift. It's like you, you owed somebody, 
just an infinite sum. I mean, can you imagine being so deep in credit card debt? Maybe we'll go tens of millions of dollars, right? For the vast majority of us, that's just beyond our ability to pay back. And someone comes along and makes a satisfactory payment to the one whom we owe. It's this payment that's made on our behalf that eliminates the debt. We no longer owe God our life because Jesus gave his life. He paid what was owed. We no longer have to die for our sins because Jesus died for our sins. If we believe this is through faith, that's really important to catch. It's through faith. This satisfactory payment does not get applied to everybody. It gets applied to believers. And why did God do all this? Well, it's to demonstrate his righteousness. There's our word again. This is getting to the heart of the gospel. Jesus dying on the cross in our place for our sins as a demonstration of the righteousness of God. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, this is Paul saying this, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how is God's righteousness on display in the gospel? Well, so often his righteousness is manifested in his judgment. And he is just toward sin, meaning sin will be paid for. If God somehow just said, nah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna worry about your sins, and he just kind of, I don't know, swept them off to the side, well, then he's no longer just. You, you might like that idea and think, yeah, that would be good. Just send, them, send my sins away, and, uh, and that's it. And then that would be a good thing. But if God just does that, speaking it that way, just saying, yeah, I'm not going to consider punishing these sins, well, then he's not really just anymore, is he? Um, to illustrate the point, consider, and I hope this hasn't happened to any of you, but consider there was someone who murdered a family member of yours. Someone who, maybe just a random act of violence, a, a criminal who was on the loose, randomly targeted one of your family members, a close family member. You could even say your own parent or sibling or child. And when that person ends up going to court because of this situation, what if the judge just said, you know, I'm just going to forget about this sin and uh, you're free to go. Would you think that judge was a good judge? You would not. You would have some serious issues. Uh, most of us would probably be, say he deserves the death penalty for what he did. And yet you're just going to let him go? Well, here we have the wrath of God towards sin being maintained because God doesn't just say, you know, I'm just going to forget about your sin. God actually sent his son to bear in his body on the cross our sins, that his wrath would be poured out on the Son, that the Son would, would take and absorb all that we deserve, God's 
raging righteous anger towards sin would be placed on the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. So he's actually dealing with the sin. It's not that he's just forgetting it. He, he imputed this sinfulness. He, he put on Jesus the sins of us all. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ became sin for us, meaning he took the penalty of our sins. He bore in his body on the cross our sins. He took that onto his account. God is being just. And because he did this, because Jesus took our place in bearing the wrath of God, God now is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you can actually be justified before God, declared innocent. He can say that that you are truly innocent because when you have faith in Jesus, his satisfactory payment for sin is now applied to you and God's justice is maintained and God is no longer your judge, but he's your father. You're adopted into his family. You see God as Savior, no longer as condemning judge, but Savior. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And it is all about faith. In chapter 4, Paul goes on to use the example of Abraham. I'll just touch on this lightly because I want to spend quite a bit of time in the final chapter, chapter 5, where Paul is writing that, Abraham was not justified by works, because then he would have something to boast about. Instead, he was justified by faith. And if there's one verse you want to really dwell on in Romans 4, it's verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. There's our word again, righteousness. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, not only in the way he maintained his justice by punishing sin in the work of Jesus, but his righteousness is also revealed in his crediting to the believer his very righteousness. Not to the worker, but to the believer, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Perhaps many of you have been told that God will justify the godly, those who adapt, change their lives to meet his standard. When they work toward that end, they will eventually hear, good, faithful servant. But that's not what the Bible presents. The Bible presents this dynamic of the one who believes that God will justify the ungodly, he is the one who is saved. He is the one who has righteousness placed on his account because he's looking outside of himself, looking to help from God for his condition, not trying to save himself, owning his unrighteousness, appealing to the very righteousness of God. He is the one who will be saved. And Paul goes on to quote David here, verses 7 and 8, From Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. 
Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And that's the blessing of the gospel, that God does not take our sin into account because he already dealt with our sin in Jesus. But instead, we appeal to him by faith and say, yes, Jesus died for me and rose again. Lord, save me. He answers that prayer, that simple prayer from a true heart of faith. He answers that by crediting to you his very righteousness. He wipes out your unrighteousness as far as legal matters are concerned. He is no longer a judge who is going to punish you for your sin, but he's a loving father toward you. You've been adopted into his family. And yes, he may discipline you as all good loving fathers do, but he will never punish you. And your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west through the work of Jesus. He's just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Chapter 5 continues this theme. Oh, man, we could spend 10 years in chapter 5. Verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith. You think Paul was really wanting to hammer this home? Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoops. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Many people out there are looking for peace with God. And there's only one way to get peace with God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, by being saved. Wow. And that happens by faith alone. So much to see. I'm skipping really, really amazing stuff. Verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So amazing. Having been, this is really important, having been justified by his blood, the substitutionary death of Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Because Jesus in his death took on the wrath of God through his blood, we will be saved from that wrath. We're justified, declared innocent forever. We were once enemies of God. And while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Verse 10. And having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life, not by our own lives, but by his life. So many good truths here. This is amazing. But let's look at verses uh, 12 to the end here. Verse 12 is another great memory verse. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All people are affected by sin. And that's evidenced by all people being affected by death. You could also say that the other way around. Uh, all people are affected by death, and that's evidenced by all people being affected by sin. But let's, uh, let's focus on the exchange of death and life, of unrighteousness and righteousness, that Paul goes into here. Because that's obviously the bad news. All people are affected by sin. All people are going to die. Death has reigned through many generations. Yet, here comes salvation in the person of Jesus, and this salvation, verse 15 says, is a free gift. This is, again, getting to the heart of the gospel. And the free gift is not like the transgression. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. 
For by the transgression of the one. What's this talking about? We're going back to Adam here. Going back to the first man, Adam. And that's set up here in verse 14. Adam is a type of Christ. Okay, there's a type-anti-type relationship that Adam has with Christ. For by Adam's transgression, his one initial sin, many died. Not just him and Eve, but all of his progeny. Those of us who were in his loins, we fell with him. Well, much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And as Paul has made clear, these many are the believers. So you have no choice to be born into the world under the condemnation of God. You are born into the world a sinner who suppresses the righteousness of God, the truth of God. But you do have this option of salvation in Jesus. God has set salvation before you, this gift of grace by the one man, Jesus Christ. Through Adam, who sinned, judgment arose, and that resulted in condemnation. You have to get that if you're going to get the the gospel. You have to understand the problem. We're condemned. All of us. It spread to all of us. You see how Paul is saying that? Through one who sinned, judgment arose, resulting in condemnation, and that's for all of us, many of us, the all, all, all children of Adam. That's how we all got here. We're all condemned. But on the other hand, through the antitype, the second Adam, there's a free gift. And that results not in condemnation, but rather what we need, justification. There's a work of Adam, his sinfulness, and then there's this gift of the second Adam, Jesus, and it results in true salvation. For through the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, and that death reigned from Adam until Moses when the law came in, and and even after that, it just kept going. I mean, the law made it worse. Death reigning. Death was king and still is king in Adam. However, in Jesus, there's an abundance of grace. There's the gift of righteousness. That is what reigns through the one, Jesus Christ. Outside of Adam, in the second Adam, in Jesus, you have this gift of grace. You have righteousness. You don't have death, but you have life. There's a type-antitype relationship. First Adam, second Adam. Verse 18, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. So continuing this idea, Adam's sin didn't just affect Adam. Adam's sin affected you. Because of Adam's sin, you are born into this world condemned by God. That is terrible news. But... Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Those who believe, every tribe, tongue, and nation, without distinction, there's justification of life through faith in Jesus. That's what Paul has been communicating this whole letter, and now he's just putting an exclamation point on it. 
Through one man's disobedience, he keeps going. Verse 19, through Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. You were made a sinner through Adam's one act of sin. You were made a sinner. Terrible news. But good news, through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. In Christ, you're no longer identified primarily as a sinner, even though you're still in a body of death and you still sin, you are primarily considered righteous. Legally, before the judge, you are righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. When Moses came along and he was given the law, sin ramped up. But the good news is that where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. Why? For what purpose? So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through, the righteous, through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To show, the law came in to show the overwhelming sinfulness of man, the overwhelming unrighteousness of man, so that you can get understand, comprehend, embrace the overwhelming righteousness of Jesus Christ, that you can have for yourself the righteousness of God on your account. You can see how he was righteous in dealing with sin, punishing his only son, pouring out his wrath on Jesus Christ. And yet you can also see how that righteousness continues on to the believer, the one who says, Yes, Jesus died for me. He paid for my sins. He rose again. God will justify you by giving you his very righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. It's central to the gospel. It, it's Every aspect of the gospel demonstrates the, the eternal righteousness of God. The good news that you can be saved, you can be reconciled to your Creator by believing in the finished work of Jesus, by trusting in what Jesus has done in your place for your sins. And that's the first five chapters of Romans. So much more to be said, so much more to look at. Next week, we'll get into chapters 6 through 16. But I hope this has made sense to you. I hope maybe even for the first time something has clicked for you. And uh, I hope that you would reach out if you have any questions. You can contact me through the website, orchardhillsbiblechurch.com. You can connect with us through Facebook, comment on YouTube, do whatever you'd like. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to help you in your journey as you seek to know God and to glorify Him forever in Jesus. God bless.